Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we are donning our research methodologies hat to learn more about the work of VAIL. So VAIL stands for Virtual Experiences Interaction Lab, and their mandate is to try and uncover effective practices as it pertains to immersive user experiences in VR. So today we are talking with Rob Dungas. He's one of the project leads. Rob's a PhD student at the University of Sydney, and he's done extensive work with VR and learning design. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Craig. Very happy to be here. You know, this is a standard question, almost like an origin story type question I like to ask uh, participants on the show, and that's, why VR? What got you interested in VR in the first place? Yeah, of course, it's a classic question. I've answered it a few times, so I've got my story down pat now. But it all started for me at a healthcare expo of all places. And this was before I was even involved in the technology at all, before I had done any development work or any design work around VR. I was merely a consumer at that point. And I donned the headset to experience a 360 video of sailing down or cruising down the Amazon River. And it was targeted towards people in aged care facilities who didn't have full use of their motor capacity anymore. And it it made me realize that VR is really a technology that can take you to another place. And that first experience is what opened my eyes to the potential as well as the current existing situation of the technology. So that very day I went and bought my first headset, which was the Samsung Gear, took it home, and and then the rest is history, I suppose. I fell into the hole from there. Do you ever get people nowadays where the hardware has evolved and come down in price? Do you ever get people um, surprised when they don a six degree of freedom headset compared to when the first three degree of freedom headsets came out like the Samsung Gear VR and the Google Cardboard. And the reason I ask Rob is I've had people disinterested in VR because they hear stories of how uninspiring three DOF headsets like Google Cardboard have been. You can't move around, your hands don't do much. Do you get much of that? Yeah. Um, in a fortunate position where I get to introduce a lot of people through research or just through user testing into VR. And it's constantly a a surprise for them how far the technology has come, but also just how the developers and designers of the experiences that they try have managed to leverage that technology and squeeze out really every possible bit of immersive Uh, nature from that technology. So I think there's still a lot of surprise and it's always going to be a novel experience for people to see that the technology is just a medium to put them into the virtual world and the virtual world kind of exists separately from that. And now that technology medium 
has gotten to the point where it has created a much easier method of entry into the virtual world. Speaking of that, you spent some time developing and doing research on a Japanese language learning application called Virtual, I probably won't get this right, Virtual Nihongo. Tell us a bit more about this experience and then more importantly, how did I do on the, on the, on the name? <laughs> yeah, you did very well. Nihongo is Japanese in Japanese. So Virtual Japanese is a virtual language application or language learning solution. It's really about creating these immersive, natural experiences where people can learn language, not only explicitly where they're getting told what the language means, but also a bit more implicitly. And, and that kind of brings it back to a more traditional experience of learning a second language, especially in a foreign, uh, foreign environment, where you might not know everything that's being said. And a lot of the understanding and comprehension of that language is built through just interpretation and more of the context around what's being said. And so our solution really tries to build up that context and provide a contextual grounding either through the embodiment that the user has with their avatar or through the simulated social interactions that they have with our virtual characters or just through environmental context clues such as the architecture of the level design and the spatial soundscape that surrounds the user. So all of those combine to a much more involved experience for the user. And this was the basis for my research. And it's what started in an honors project and now has transitioned into my PhD. So we're really looking at how we can design for those different affordances, be it presence, embodiment, or any other of the factors that contribute to overall immersion in order to improve language learning. And so I must say a caveat that I'm not a linguist. My PhD is not in linguistics or not even in language studies or education. It's entirely revolving around design and mostly around computer human interaction, but also with a bit of user experience design and interaction design on top of that. I've, I've read a few research studies related to VR and many of them, uh, I call it the low hanging fruit. They're trying to measure whether VR is an effective tool for students to uh, foster knowledge acquisition. And by knowledge acquisition, I mean you know, will they get better on, you know, the the focus and emphasis on many institutions, which is the testing regime? I my problem with that is sometimes VR offers something more than that. Like uh, you talked about context, and you know, we look at when we enter uh, an experience or a room in VR that this sense of presence and embodiment gives us kind of this magical awe, which to me, if is relegated to a research study where we're just answering questions to see how many facts or knowledge we've gathered, misses the whole point to VR. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's a very interesting discussion around the low hanging fruit, partially because 
someone has to grab that fruit, right? We can't all be reaching for the top of the tree. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the progression of the technology and the research into it. So by all means, am I not degrading any of those kind of projects? But you're right. I think there is a, a certain kind of subset of, of research studies that have been looking at how they can transition traditional computer interfaces or applications into VR and missing the point of the technology itself, which is to provide that physical and spatial immersion. And so then to answer your question, the those are the two aspects that I really think should be studied more deeply, how they impact the learning experience rather than just how the technology can be used for learning, but how the affordances will then either influence or hopefully improve the learning experience for users due to the context, due to their immersion. And that hasn't been standardized yet, too. The one research study, a gentleman, Carl Boll, who I follow on LinkedIn, had actually mentioned that he had read this study. And the, the experience that they used in the research project was deemed by many to be awful affordances like you know uh, teleporting around was difficult many of the participants became slightly uh, nauseated and so you know it's hard to to pin vr on that if the experience itself isn't giving true immersion or true presence and embodiment yeah exactly right i think because of the lack of standards there, or at least because of the difficulty of creating these experiences at this point, it's not as simple as, say, in web design. If you're not a web designer, you can go onto WordPress and easily create a website for yourself. We don't have that exact same set of tools in VR yet. So we can't just off the shelf plug and play in a few modular pieces to create a very deep and rich experience, it's still a really big effort and it takes a lot of development work just to create simple things in VR, just because of the complexity of the medium. So I think as those improve, we'll start to see better research where the question is not how comfortable do people feel and then what effect does that have on the research outcome, but more targeting on the real variables that people want to measure and and being able to understand the full effects of the technology without having to worry. An example of, of that that's very close to my research is Crystallize VR, which was from Cornell University. And they had taken a mouse and keyboard experience and moved that over to VR. And they acknowledge in their results that some of the users experience nausea and that would then in turn affect their ability to learn and so until we can get over those hurdles it's always going to be a difficult process to get the exact research outcome that we're looking for and things are getting better on my show i often get stories from people about the proverbial roller coaster experience where you know, when headsets first came out, they weren't sure sort of, uh, you know, what the 
the latency and what the you know how many hertz they should be running it at and so often people would go on a roller coaster and you know even those with the hardiest of stomachs would still get nauseated because the people weren't sure what they were doing at that time yeah and i'm lucky enough to have quite a strong stomach so i've never i've never experienced too bad nausea but i know that everyone's different so we really need to be designing these experiences to meet everyone's needs and not just the people who can manage it. This is a daunting task. So if we think there's a plethora of factors to consider when designing a VR experience, so, you know, some of these might include, how do we move around? Do we uh, allow the user to teleport or do we allow them to have smooth locomotion with the joystick? Or how do we grab something and interact with an object? You know, how long should the experience be? Should the person be allowed to be in there more than 20 minutes? Or how effective is the tutorial when you first enter? Can we describe to the user exactly what they have to do first? You know, it goes on and on. What what should their avatar look like? So again, it's almost mind-blowing the amount of minutia that exists to get a VR experience to be pleasant and well thought out. Of all these things, you know, what would you say are the most important ones? Or are they, is it too big a list to actually unpack in one simple answer? Yeah, it is such a tricky question. And as you say, it's such a massive list. And really, as designers and developers of these experiences, you have to control every tiny little factor, every moment of the experience. You need to understand at least at a base level, what's going to happen, even if you have some level of simulation or even artificial intelligence on top of that, you still need to know what the boundaries and the constraints are that the user is operating within. So I think in a kind of vague researcher way, I could say that the most important factor there is whatever is fit for the purpose. And so to try to provide some context for that, I think, with something like language learning, you want to leverage those spatial affordances. You want to have the user feeling like they are really within the world, participating in the social interactions and having a sense of agency. So then you're looking a lot more at the presence and embodiment side. And things like the graphics or the locomotion methods, they really aren't as important as say having realistic sound and having not only a, an ambient environment track, but then also having objects each individually make their own sounds and those sounds being represented accurately in space surrounding the user. So that's one example, but another example could be completely abstract and something like visualizing data or trying to uh, represent art within VR and in that case maybe a sense of embodiment isn't as important because you don't want the user to feel like they are either themselves or another person walking through that space or even existing within the physical limitations of that world in which case locomotion might be much more important and, and something like flying over teleporting or even walking in place would be a more appropriate method to leverage there because it meets the needs of what the application or the experience is trying to provide. So hopefully that 
has a bit of insight in there, but a very tricky question indeed. Hmm. Let's talk about Vale for a minute. So you're spearheading a a large group, actually, of I think it's more than 20-some researchers and analytics to shed more light on what exactly encapsulates a good VR experience. Um, First of all, you know, like any good researcher and scientist, one hypothesizes usually what might come out of it. What would, what's your hope or what are you hoping to accomplish from this large study? Yeah, so thanks for for introducing the project. Susan Oslin, my co-founder, and I have been working on this for about a year now, putting the study together and building our, our enormous team of amazing volunteers to help us in this journey. And the study is really a broad analysis of the VR landscape, looking specifically at the interaction design. So hypothesizing about Specific results is probably a little bit uh, too far ahead, but in general, we're really looking to come up with a catalogue of different design patterns, so formalising different research that many other researchers have completed in the past to have a very clear mapping of all of the different possible opportunities for interaction design within VR experiences. And as a part of that, we're hoping to find very concrete quantitative numbers on the different proportions of these patterns within different use cases. So we're analyzing 12 different use cases across both enterprise and more consumer-oriented markets, and then different titles themselves, which in total we'll be looking at 72 titles this year. In each of these um, research uh, analyzed applications, is there ever uh, an opportunity where the the volunteer researcher has to rate something like on a scale of one to five? For example, I can't help but think, you know, moving around within VR, maybe that's one thing the researcher or the volunteer has to look at. Do you ever uh, have them say on a scale of one to one to five, how was the locomotion? Because and the reason I ask that is, you know, if you look at uh, often on the stores, either on the Steam store where there are lots of uh, games, or on the Oculus store, people's opinions vary widely in regards to whether you know. Uh, some say I love the teleporting, or some say, oh, please take away the teleporting, it's making me sick. Or, you know, so having an unbiased report on something with such a grand scale as user experience seems daunting to me. And how do you make it less unbiased when you ask a volunteer to go in to look at and evaluate um, an application in VR? Yeah, great question. And we've got a couple of different strategies there. So First and foremost, it is a a quantitative analysis. So we are looking less at the user's subjective experience and more at just the different applications or the different appearances of these different design patterns. Uh, But of course, as part of that, and, and definitely within design research, an important part is to understand what that 
does for the user's feelings and their perceptions. So we do have elements. Uh, we have heuristic review elements. So in that case, we're looking for usability issues and more trying to rate the severity of that issue. That's it's very traditional in terms of the heuristic studies. Uh, but then we've also kind of transferred that and translated the heuristic component into more of a qualitative experience. So we've got a Likert scale for that as well, but then we're also getting user feedback just in terms of plain text to understand how that specific pattern in the context of the application made the user feel or what benefit it had to the overall experience. So there are these hints of kind of quasi-quantitative in case of the, the Likert scales and the subjective experience rating there, but also the qualitative feedback that we get from our researchers. And we're not using that necessarily to make any bold claims about the patterns and how they apply, but we're using it to back up the quantitative data that we find. And so we'll be supporting our quantitative answers with some of the feedback, but not entirely leading the research direction with those subjective opinions, because it is so tricky when you're balancing. And, and another strategy for that is to make sure that we have a really diverse pool of user experience researchers. And these are people that might have a background in traditional UX, or they might have a background in VR design and development. And so by blending all of these people together and creating teams of users and researchers that have such broad perspectives already, hopefully we'll be able to capture a lot of the different facets and not try to get everyone to give the same answers. Rob, you mentioned earlier that you're looking at a variety of categories. In fact, I think there's something like 11 different categories. I'll list a few of them just so listeners have a sense as to the scope of this project. So you're looking at VR experiences that might fall into the category of training and knowledge, educational, there's a category on entertainment, there's a category related to social VR, narrative VR, product design, so for example, architectural type, you know, and 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 so on. So 11 I think different categories, which is massive. What what made you decide to pick such a broad scope for this study? Yeah, so there's 12 total. Uh, we've got that list predominantly from a VR intelligence report from 2018 talking about the different needs in terms of supply and demand of these experiences. And the reason that we went for such a broad categorization is because we really need to see how these different patterns get applied for different use cases. And that's kind of harking back to what I was saying about the quantitative analysis is hopefully at the end, if we can say something like 70% of all manufacturing and design VR applications use teleporting as their primary method of locomotion, that will inform future designers to know okay, this is for some reason, and, and this is hopefully what our research will pull out is the insights into why these get used, not only how and how much, but the future designers will be able to know 
this is the standard for our use case, for our niche. And then they'll be able to make a much more informed decision about whether they follow that standard or whether they have the need to break that and change the standard, which is totally fine as well. What a great way to summarize it. That's that's beautiful. And, and you know, I think a, a lot of people's kind of light above their head will go on because of the way you just described that, almost like a best practices, if you will, for some of these different categories. What do you, you've stumbled across already a few challenges. You said you've been at this for almost a year now. Uh, let's talk about that. What have, what has been some of the challenges so far with your work and Susan's for Vale? Yeah, you're right. There have been a few and of course it's been quite a year. So on top of the challenges in the research, there's been logistical challenges and making sure that the team is supported throughout a difficult year where we're already working remotely and we're spread across the world in about 12 different time zones. So it's always hard to coordinate everyone, but we've, we've really rallied and I think the enthusiasm of the team has made it possible and the willing to be in the willingness to be involved has has all helped solve those challenges so in terms of the larger challenges one of the biggest things we faced was just creating a taxonomy for the different ui elements that we intend to find and so susan led with a number of others in the team a committee, a UI committee that was finding all of the prior research into different aspects, be that locomotion methods or selection and commitment patterns for when people want to interact with different things inside the experience and really bringing that all together into a single taxonomy. It resulted in a huge Miro board mind map with probably thousands of uh, tree branches and then trying to distill that down into an evaluation form that asks all the right questions in order to then be able to place the answers in the framework of that mind map of that context from prior research. So that was predominantly her side, and and I've been involved in the handover for getting that to be a functional form. And we struggled a while to find a platform that was going to be dynamic and flexible enough for us to implement such a questionnaire or a survey that can adapt to the needs based on the answers that the researchers will be providing. And so the kind of light bulb moment for me there was finding Qualtrics, the online survey platform. And being able to do a lot more customization with how questions are asked, being able to loop questions based on certain answers, being able to only display questions given previous answers, and then even getting as far as writing some custom JavaScript code within the questions to keep track of answers and keep track of variables as the user or the researcher is moving through that evaluation form. And so this challenge in solving that, what we think we've done is created one of the most comprehensive analysis forms for VR experiences. And we can now go through and and do that analysis that I mentioned before about looking broadly across the landscape and quantitatively understanding where patterns 
apply within certain applications, but then also having an understanding of some of the metadata. So things like which headset was being used at the time, and then are there any different affordances that we need to understand around accessibility and ergonomics, which then would factor into the answers themselves. So really having such a, an amazing taxonomy to begin with has helped us create the evaluation form itself. And then both of those by challenging us to create innovative solutions there will result in a much more comprehensive analysis in the end. I can imagine in that form, that online form, that there's some highly technical terms that people, you know, the average person who maybe isn't a, a steward of user design might struggle a bit with. So how did you overcome that with all the technicalities to try and describe and have someone sort of understand how to evaluate said experience? Yeah, that was another challenge on top of it. And it's almost a, an education process of our own to just have these different committees organize the research and, and translate that and synthesize their own findings into the framework and then teach that on to the rest of the researchers. So we've had a lot of different training sessions where we walk through the taxonomy and we explain some of the terms. We talk about how the questions might be asked for that. We talk about different ways to answer them. And then on top of that, we have a companion website that the researchers will be able to look at and through that website, get a lot more information, not only definitions of the terms, but real examples of those applications of design patterns in practice with animated GIFs, links to experiences or YouTube videos of experiences being played that has examples of those patterns as well. And so this is in itself a bit of a research output for us. And at the end of the process, we definitely want to be releasing that companion document just as a almost a VR dictionary for any end user. Yeah, I've looked at the website and, you know, it's efficacy for someone either new to developing VR applications or someone who is experienced would give them great insight into some of the things that they have to consider. And then, as you said before, ultimately, you know, what are, what, what are the choices they should make in regards to having someone uh, go inside their experience, given the goal that they want people to get out of that experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost creating a shared language between us where we might have known about the concepts, like knowing that you could remap controls between your left and right hand. That intuitively makes sense to everyone, or knowing that something might be a two-handed activity versus a one-handed activity. But having the names for that now and having the taxonomy to say, okay, monomanual versus bimanual, that way, we always know what we're talking about when we're sharing our findings and we're always staying on the same page in terms of those feedback and, and outcomes. As we start to wrap up this talk, I want to share with you a quote that I pulled from one of your publications and I thought it was uh, poignant and maybe you can explain it. So you said in one of your research papers, you said, the technology alone will not see widespread adoption without the proven application of immersive experiences in a range of contexts 
backed by well-researched and validated design practices. Unpack that for us. Tell us a bit more about what you meant there. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm very happy to get the opportunity to to talk through it in a little bit more depth. So It's a great quote. <laughs> thank you. Obviously, the first part refers to how VR technology alone, the, the sensors and the displays and the audio, it's all amazing technology. And the fact that it's been packaged into this extremely small form factor and shipped around the world is is amazing. But that itself won't lead to adoption. Just having the device is not enough to get people to use it. And so what I'm saying is that the the applications that live within the technology, the experiences that people do will drive the adoption. And, and that's, of course, very understandable and intuitive for people. But the caveat there is that it can't just be run-of-the-mill applications. It can't just be people's prototypes and people's test applications that will then lead to the adoption. I think the early adopters are happy to, to put up with bugs and issues and potential nausea, and that's fine. That's As an early adopter myself, that's something we take on and, and something that we're happy to do. But really to get widespread adoption around the world and make sure that this technology has a lasting impact on society and on individuals as well, we really need to have the validated design principles which then other designers can use going forward with their future designs. So something like the difference between having a completely static environment versus a more adaptive, more reactive environment, that's just one small piece where we still don't know as researchers what the benefit or what the impact of that is on the users. Or for another example, say photorealism versus more animated, stylized graphics. There's a few early papers in that area looking at the effects of the graphics on the user's perception, but then also on specific tasks and and for us specifically, I think it would be poignant to talk about the education experiences. So there are papers showing that you don't need photorealism and often that actually hinders the user's immersion or involvement because of effects like the uncanny valley or just because it seems strange to them to be in a technologically mediated version of reality where they're looking through the goggles And it's supposed to be representing reality, but it's not quite there. So on the other hand, you have stylized graphics. And we found with our own research that people are willing to suspend their disbelief there. And they are willing to kind of adapt to the environment, even if it is more cartoon-based, in order to then feel that sense of immersion. And as long as you're then considering things about the physical immersion and their sense of embodiment and their sense of space and all of the other different factors that come with using VR, then the graphics themselves aren't as important. But there's still so much research to be done there to work out what are the impacts, 
when it is applicable in certain cases and when you should definitely be using, say, photorealism. And so that's why we need more validation on the design principles. And, and we really need the research to lead this because I think there's, there's almost too much saturation when it comes to letting the market do it for itself. And we've seen that in the past with mobile design, uh, even going to the iPhone. When the iPhone was first released, they didn't have any third-party applications on there. There were a few applications. They were well-designed because they were always integrated from the very beginning of the design process. And so that's why we saw such a huge spike in uptake on the iPhones because it met a need that the market had. It provided this amazing service all with great user experience and it was the full package. And with VR, we don't have that exact same kind of rollout. We have much more disparate applications coming from all of these different designers and developers and they don't necessarily know all the best practices and I'm not saying that we know all the best practices yet either but that's our mission and our collective goal to make sure that we can understand those before we start populating all the content. As you were describing that I couldn't help but think about vehicle design so you know in a car or or a truck if you think about where the uh, speedometer is and in in most cars that I've driven the speedometer is in front of me kind of sort of hidden just behind the steering wheel however there have been some very few cases though where the speedometer might be located a little bit to the right which I find hard and difficult when I'm driving and you know that that's a great example or an analogy is you know what are the ramifications to that small simple sort of moving the driver's eyesight to the to the right slightly, or I guess uh, <laughs> I'm I'm from Canada, so I'm thinking about the side of the road that I'm driving on. But anyway, I think you get my point. Like you know, there should be standards to say you know if you're going to experiment and tweak the user's experience, you know what what are the ramifications of that? Um, what do you think about that, Rob? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I might not be the best person to talk about modern car design i drive a 30 year old uh (laughs) four-wheel drive truck as i think you guys call them over there so but that said i think you know the old school method of having tactile switches for the air conditioning and and very easy to locate without having to look buttons for changing the radio station versus some of the more modern cars that have the touch screens and all of the information centered on a single panel, there are there are limitations that come with that and there are kind of distractions that lend themselves to the driver because they have to lose focus on the road for a second to have that slight bit of cognitive friction, even if it's not much. But if they're doing it every time, then there's consistently this pause or this break in their focus and attention. And you can easily translate that over to VR because I think it's about constantly maintaining that focus and attention. And if we do allow the user to explore and, and lose their sense of attention, then we need to know the methods for gaining that attention back and, and bringing them back into the experience. And it's almost like meditation a little bit where it's easy to get lost in your own thoughts, but then how can you recenter and, and bring yourself back to focusing on the task at hand? Hmm. 
Well said. To wrap up, is there anything else that maybe wasn't said today that you were hoping the audience could get out of this talk? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, seeing as I know that your audience is full of educators, but also practitioners and, and designers in their own right, all I would say is keep on designing. We are at a great time in history for this technology where we are starting to see some adoption and, and we really can drive that through good design practices and, and applications that, as I said before, fit the purpose and really leverage the technology for the needs of the user within the context of what they're trying to do in the technology itself. Well, Rob, I'm excited to see this massive, like I said, massive study come to fruition over the next year or so, and uh, hopefully things go smoothly, and uh, the results and the impact on the VR world will be tremendous. Thanks for coming on the show today, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas break. Well-deserved, I bet, with all the work you've been doing so far. Thank you very much for having me, Greg. It's been a pleasure, and it's always great to discuss this industry, this field of research with other like-minded individuals. So thanks again for having me. If anyone else wants to talk about it, feel free to shoot me an email at robert.dongas, D-O-N-G-A-S, at sydney.edu.au. That would be the best way to get in touch. So I'm looking forward to hearing from anyone who has any interest in this. Awesome, Rob. I'll put that actually in the show notes at the top of the podcast too. Perfect. Thank you, Craig. Thank you.